If you have a Bible with you this morning, or you can open that Bible app or grab a Bible in the pew rack in front of you, but join me, if you will, in Galatians chapter 2. Galatians chapter 2, as we continue on in the study of one of Paul's letters, probably the first one he ever wrote, very passionate, very poignant, everything in it talks about the gospel of God. But this morning, we want to have a conversation about persisting in the gospel ministry. You know, one of the easiest things for people to do is to just quit. Years ago, I heard an interview by a guy by the name of Edgar Harold. He was a guy who survived the sinking of the USS Indianapolis back in World War II. In fact, he was one of only a few people who survived that. But he had to swim in the middle of the ocean for days on end before he was rescued. And he said something in that interview that I found to be very impactful. He said, dying is easy, but you've got to struggle to live. Dying is easy, but you've got to struggle to live. And I think that's a great word about life. Because in the difficulties and pressures of everyday life that all of us experience, one of the greatest temptations that you and I ever face is the temptation to give up, the temptation to quit. It's kind of an appealing temptation, really. And the reason why that's true is because it's the path of least resistance. There is no struggle with quitting. There is no confrontation, no work, no fight. All you have to do to quit is just to pack your bags and walk away. And oftentimes there's no place where we find the temptation to walk away more than when it comes to the things of God, when it comes to the ministry of the gospel. And that's especially true today in our age. Because we live in a world that is focused on cultural acceptance. And cultural acceptance always compromises the gospel. If you want the lost world to accept you as part of their group, it'll usually require that you water down, compromise, or even walk away from the gospel altogether. And the thing that I know from scripture, and the thing that I know from my own personal experience as a follower of Jesus Christ is that you can either follow Jesus or you can run with the crowd. But you can't do both at the same time. Because Jesus made it very clear, no man can serve two masters. Now, those of you who were here with us two weeks ago, you might remember that Paul was writing to the churches in South Galatia. And he's been talking about this struggle of his, how he struggled for the gospel among these churches that he founded, particularly as it relates to these false teachers who had infiltrated these churches. Paul talks a lot about this struggle in the first two chapters of his letter, a section where he talks a lot about his own personal life and ministry from the time that he was converted. A lot of this personal section of these two first two chapters of Galatians reveals and revolves around two very important trips that the Apostle Paul made to Jerusalem. We looked at the first trip two weeks ago at the end of chapter 1 where he recounts a visit that he made three years after his conversion to Jesus Christ. A visit that he made primarily in order to get to know some of the apostles. A visit in which he uh, was only there for two weeks But he wanted to meet Peter and he wanted to meet the leader of the Jerusalem church who was James, the half-brother of Jesus. So he did that, but 
he wasn't there very long. And then as we get into chapter 2, Paul talks about a second visit that he made to the holy city of Jerusalem. And this visit is made several years later. In fact, he says, after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem, which most likely was 14 years after his conversion, 11 years after the first visit that he made to Jerusalem. He, he talk, he's talking about a second trip that he made to Jerusalem, and he, he gives us some details about this trip in the first 10 verses of chapter 2. Now, we're not going to read this whole passage here, but I want to just begin by reading a few verses to get us started. And so your Bible's open to Galatians chapter 2, and we're going to have these words up on the screen as well. But beginning in verse 1, here's what we read. Then, after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles, in order to make sure I was not running or have not run in vain." Now, let's stop there for just a moment here and kind of reflect for a few minutes on this. Because Paul is now telling us of a second visit that he made to Jerusalem 14 years after he had met the Lord on that Damascus Road blinding light experience. Most likely, the purpose for this visit was to deliver a famine offering, a relief offering. And you can read about that in Acts chapter 11. I'm going to again remind you of kind of the lay of the land here. We're going to put a map up on the screen. But the people that are there at the church in Antioch where Paul and Barnabas were serving just north of Jerusalem, Antioch of Syria, circled there in green, they had become aware that there was a severe famine in the land. And this Gentile church made it their mission in life to demonstrate their concern and their desire to want to help this predominantly Jewish church in the region of Judea by collecting this relief offering for them. In fact, Acts chapter 11 talks about how there was a man by the name of Agabus who stood up in the church in Antioch and <coughs> excuse me, and through a revelation of the Holy Spirit told them about this coming famine. And the leaders there then responded by collecting an offering that would be sent to Jerusalem. Probably that is what Paul is referring to when he talks about the revelation. When he says there in verse 2, I went up because of a revelation, he's probably talking about when Agabus stood up in their church meeting and said, hey, there's going to be a famine in the land. And that revelation led them to then begin collecting this relief offering that was delivered to Jerusalem by Paul and Barnabas. And so that kind of sets a little bit of the context here of what, what it is that's taking place and the reason why Paul makes this second trip, a second of four trips that Paul himself makes to Jerusalem during his ministry. That was the official reason for going, but there's another reason why Paul wanted to go. A kind of behind-the-scenes type of reason. 
And that is that Paul wants to take advantage of this opportunity while he is delivering this bag of money to the apostles there in Jerusalem to, to, as he says it here, set before them the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles. You see, there's been a lot of controversy about Paul, whether or not he is a real apostle, whether or not the gospel that he preaches is from man or from God. Whether or not the gospel that he preaches is a twisted gospel to serve Paul's own agenda. And so part of what he wants to accomplish in this visit is uh, to Jerusalem is to have a meeting with the Jerusalem apostles in order to unpack his gospel that he he was preaching and that he was wanting to make sure that they agreed with what it is that he was preaching. So there's no question about whether what the Jerusalem apostles and what Paul were preaching were exactly the same gospel message. One that centered around the, the um, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ alone. And of course, this is to counter the false teachers and what they were saying. That in order to be saved, you had to put your faith in Jesus Christ and you had to follow certain Jewish rituals. With all of that as kind of the backdrop that leads us into the heart of our passage this morning. And I just, what I love most of all about this is just how tenacious Paul is about the gospel. Remember that he is talking about, we're here talking about persisting in the gospel ministry today. Now, Paul faced a lot of struggles. Paul faced a lot of hardships. And those hardships would only get worse the longer he was in ministry. Paul was not a quitter, though. He refused to give up. And in fact, Paul would later say to the Philippians, he says, I press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And what's behind that is this incredible vision of the Lord when he was changed and transformed on the road to Damascus. Now, we might not have the same dramatic experience as Paul did, but let me tell you that if you don't have a solid vision of the Lord Jesus Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection, you'll be tempted to walk away. And if you can't see that and you haven't seen that in your heart, then when things get tough, and they will get tough, there will be a temptation to give up. It's that vision of Christ, it's that calling of Christ that keeps us persisting in the things of the Lord like the Apostle Paul. Listen, if you're going to do that, it requires that you will need to be aware of three very important realities that we find here in this passage of Scripture about the gospel ministry. That God not only gave to Paul, but the gospel ministry that God has given to every single one of us as well. And let me just say and remind all of us here this morning that if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you are also a minister of the gospel. Now, you may not be a full-time missionary, you may not be a full-time pastor, but we're all called to serve the Lord with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We are called to demonstrate our love for God in a way that, in the way that we live, in the way that we speak about Jesus. Friends, let me be clear. We are all engaged in the ministry of the gospel. And so we need to be aware of three very important realities if we want to finish our race well. 
The first is that the gospel ministry involves struggle. The gospel ministry involves struggle. Listen, if you haven't experienced any struggle in life because of what you believe about Jesus Christ, you're probably not living very openly for Jesus Christ. Because if you're open and you're honest with your faith, it's usually going to take you into some area of struggle somewhere along the way. And that's clearly reflected beginning there in verse 4. Look at what Paul says. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. You should know by now that one of the characteristics of Paul's letter to the Galatians is that it is very, very direct. And in fact, if you're a very direct person, this is probably one of the things that is so attractive to you about the letter to the Galatians. This is a guy who tells it like it is. He's not afraid of anybody. He will not shut up when it comes to talking about the truth of the gospel. We see Paul being very direct in this letter to the Galatians. And the reason that he comes across so forcefully is because he's concerned about these people that he's led to Christ. He's concerned about them in the infancy, in the immaturity of their faith. He's concerned about them buying into these smooth-talking false teachers whose message basically was, according to Acts chapter 15 and verse 1, You know what? Unless you are circumcised according to the customs of Moses, you cannot be saved. It is impossible to be saved unless you are circumcised. And every male in the audience said, what? And the false teachers had their attention. And they sounded so very convincing because they had been raised in Judaism. They knew all of the Old Testament scriptures backwards and forwards. But Paul knew them for who they really were, and he calls them out on this. He basically calls them spiritual slave traders, and that they want to rob believers of the freedom that Christ had died for to bring people back into slavery once again. And Paul knew that this was not the gospel. It wasn't the good news. It wasn't freedom. It was bondage. And it had to be confronted. It had to be stopped because... There is nothing liberating about a salvation that is based on works. Friends, that is the greatest kind of bondage because if it depends upon you or if it depends upon me, we are in a lot of trouble. We can never measure up to the righteousness of God. Our best goodness doesn't even come close to the holiness of God. Our very best is worthless. It's just filthy rags before God. Now, as we've said before, as Christians, we are called to be gentle and kind. We're called to be compassionate and caring, and we're we're to seek peace and reconciliation. But we also must confront error, which is the whole point of the first two chapters of Galatians. Because when truth is on the line, so is the eternal destiny of human beings. And so when truth is, is compromised... We need to be willing to stand up and to confront that. And Paul serves as a great example of how to do this. Several years ago when I was in high school, I remember stopping in for a visit at 
the house of an older lady from the church that we attended. Now, I believe that day it was my mom, my sister, and I who were visiting, but this older lady, she was a sweet lady. She was a very spiritual lady, a a lady who knew her Bible very well, a lady who was generally a very soft-spoken kind of person. She wasn't very big. She was probably about 100 pounds soaking wet. Well, we come in and we are there for a visit and we bring some chocolate chip cookies along with us and we're just hanging out for a little bit. And we're sitting there in her living room. It's just around the corner from the front door and uh, we're just enjoying this nice conversation with her. Well, the next thing we know, uh, the, the doorbell rings and so she excuses herself and she walks around the corner to the front door. She opens the door and she begins this conversation with two Jehovah's Witnesses who had showed up at her door. They start into their little speech and about 30 seconds in, this, this older lady, this sweet old lady just interrupts them and she says, what? You guys are Jehovah's Witnesses. And she turns on them and she starts letting them have it. Now, I'd never seen this side of her before. I mean, she was the, uh, the sweetheart of an older lady. And, and she, uh, she starts tearing into them. And she is rebuking them for the false gospel that they had been proclaiming. And she is accusing them of leading people straight to hell. And every word of what she was saying, by the way, was true. But... I didn't see this coming at all, and neither did my mom or my sister, and we're sitting there thinking, we're looking at each other like, what in the world are we going to do? I mean, should we go and help her? Should we sneak out the back door and act like we didn't even hear any of this? And, and a few minutes go by, and she closes the door. They get out of there as fast as they can, and she comes back, and she is just red-faced and is so embarrassed and she looks at us and she says, I'm so sorry that you had to hear that. And we're sitting there kind of stunned and we're like, well, no big deal. It's fine. I mean, you got to do what you got to do. And then she goes on to tell us that some 20 years earlier, her mother had been duped by some Jehovah's Witnesses and was led astray into that cult. And she never did return to the true gospel again. And so a false gospel was a very personal thing to her. Now, friends, we may not have a story like that, but the gospel that saved our lives ought to be very personal to us as well. And when people go messing around with that, it ought to create a righteous indignation in our spirit that wants to confront it. Now, we, we do want to remember to, be, uh, to, to keep our Christian testimony in the process. And she may have gotten a little bit over the top on that. But what we see here in Paul is that he is responding in a very similar way. And he even calls down curses on these people to try, who are trying to twist the gospel. Again, in verse 5, he says this. To them, to these false teachers, we did not yield in submission for a moment, even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Notice again that the definite article there, the truth of the gospel. There is one truth and there is one gospel. And it is the truth about free forgiveness being offered to sinful people in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And those of us who have been changed by the gospel must defend the gospel as well. 
That's what Paul told Timothy he must do in 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 12. Fight the good fight of the faith. Hold, uh, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Let, let me just say that this is a very important principle in our day and age when people want to define their own individual truth. Some of you may have seen or at least you heard about the Oscars last Sunday where Will Smith, who was sitting in the front row, went up on stage and smacked Chris Rock right across the side of the face for something that he said. Now, if you didn't see it, we have a picture at least that you, we could show you here this morning of this that we're going to put up on the screen. And, 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 you know, there's a lot of speculation about whether this was even real or if it was staged or something like that. But after smacking Chris Rock, Will Smith goes back to his seat and he just keeps yelling at him and, and, and berating him in front of everyone. And, and nothing gets done about it. He just continues to sit there. Well, all of the media outlets have been talking about that this past week. And many of them have been saying things like this. Listen, there's a good reason for this. We just need to understand Will Smith's truth. What? We need to understand Will Smith's truth? Friends, I don't know Will Smith personally. I, I'm not trying to pick on him in any way. In fact, I, I really feel kind of bad for the guy. But this idea of trying to understand your truth is so dangerous. It's the, biggest, it's the biggest worry that I've got. I mean, our biggest concern should not be your truth or my truth, but the truth. That, that there is only one truth. The church is under a lot of pressure to modify its message and to reshape its message. And we often face a lot of hostility and criticism because what we proclaim is absolute truth. And uh, we must never give in to the pressure. We must never water down the gospel of grace. That eternity and that life with God hinges on the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Friends, the gospel involves struggle and the gospel is worth fighting for. Let me say that again. The gospel is worth fighting for. And if you don't embrace that, it's going to be hard to persist in the ministry of the gospel. Second reality is that the gospel ministry requires acceptance. Acceptance. Not of opinions or alternative truths, but the gospel ministry requires acceptance of all kinds of people. And I think that this is the primary reason why Paul took Titus along with him. Did you notice that? This trip to Jerusalem 14 years after Paul's conversion involved Paul, Barnabas, and who? Titus. Why did he take him along? I mean, he's just a young guy. He's probably still a teenager at the time. Verse 3. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Now, remember that they're going into the heart of Jerusalem. They're going to the mother church 
which is fundamentally a Jewish church, and they're taking a full-blooded, uncircumcised Gentile through the beautiful columns and into the sanctuary to meet with the apostles who had been with Jesus. Not even Titus was forced to be circumcised, though he was Greek. I think that Paul took Titus along with him for a very strategic reason. He was emphasizing a critical point about the gospel, namely that the gospel is for all people. The gospel is for Jews. The gospel is for Gentiles. And both Jews and Gentiles are accepted by God on exactly the same terms, namely by faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross and nothing else added. Titus had come to faith through the ministry of the Apostle Paul. And Paul says, listen, this guy is Greek. He is not Jewish. There is no reason for him to be circumcised. And he does this in response to the false teachers who are coming in and saying that you need to be circumcised in order to be saved. And so Paul takes Titus along to Jerusalem kind of as a test case. He's going to present him before the apostles there, and he's going to say, okay, let's talk about the gospel that that we are all preaching and make sure that we're all on the same page. Because I've got some false teachers up here, and they're teaching that in order to to be saved, you have to be circumcised. And and I just want to make sure that Jewish converts, you, um, you apostles are preaching the same gospel that I'm preaching and that there's no inconsistency whatsoever between us. And so he pushes Titus right to the front of these men, these church leaders in Jerusalem, and he says to the apostles, what do you guys say about this? And their response was, nothing else is required. If this man, as a Greek, a full-blooded Gentile, has trusted by faith in Jesus Christ, he doesn't need to be circumcised. And that was a huge thing for the Apostle Paul. Now, let me just say this morning that this kind of thing is still a constant danger. And it may not be circumcision. I mean, no one here at St. Paul's is ever going to demand that a person get circumcised in order to be saved. But over 2,000 years, believers have been, uh, had this tendency to add things to the gospel as a condition for salvation. Sometimes it's unknowingly. We, we do it without even thinking about it. But the reason why we do it, as we said the first me- in the first message of this series, the reason why we do it is because we're all recovering legalists. You know what? I am a recovering Pharisee. You are a recovering Pharisee. We we are all trying to get over the scoring system of earning points to find favor with God. We all love rules, whether we say that we love them or not. You, You know what? We just want people to tell us what to do. I mean, just tell me what boxes I need to check off so that I can be okay with God. Friends, there is only one rule when it comes to salvation. And do you know what that one rule is? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That, that's the only rule. And what that means, particularly for us, is that we are bound by faith to accept all people within the community of faith. Because Jesus died for all kinds of people. There are no second class citizens in the kingdom of God. 
And there shouldn't be any second class citizens in the local church of Jesus Christ either. Because every believer is saved exactly the same way. By faith in Christ alone plus nothing else. Which is why there can't be and there shouldn't be any kind of discrimination within the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are not to discriminate against race. We are not to discriminate according to ethnic heritage. We are not to discriminate according to sex. We are not to discriminate according to social or economic status. We are not even to, to discriminate according to personal matters of opinion, which we might disagree on. And we can vocalize those disagreements, but we don't kick people to the curb because of them. If there is no difference in our standing before God, there should be no difference in our standing before one another. If God accepted us just as we are without one plea, but that his blood was shed for me, then we ought to accept one another in the same way, based on faith in Jesus Christ alone. And so the gospel involves struggle and the gospel requires personal acceptance of others. But then finally this morning, we learn that the gospel ministry encourages partnership. The gospel ministry encourages partnership. We need each other to do a worldwide work of taking the gospel to men and women, boys and girls. And we can see this beginning there in verse 6. Paul says this, Those who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I was, I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter was entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, and when James and Cephas, Peter and John, who seemed to be pillars, influential, perceived the grace that, that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentile, or the yeah, that we should go to the Gentiles, and they to the circumcised, to the Jews. Now, this statement here reveals a couple of very important outcomes of this second visit that Paul makes to Jerusalem, and, and there are a couple of things that are worth noting here. First of all, Paul says that these influential apostles in Jerusalem added nothing to me. That's a key phrase there. In other words, it was like Paul says, okay, you know what? In our work in Antioch and and everywhere else that God has sent me, here's what I've been preaching. Now you tell me that I'm wrong. And the other apostles looked at Paul and said, well, there's nothing wrong with that gospel. That's the same gospel that we've been preaching right here. And so they affirmed the gospel that he was preaching. They agreed on the heart of the gospel. They, they did not make any attempt to add anything to it. Not circumcision, not temple worship, not uh, Sabbath observance, not a code of conduct. The, the, the gospel was all about Jesus Christ and all about the cross. Now, Paul didn't receive his gospel from these men, even though he had been accused of doing that. But, in a very in, but, but it was very important to him that... These that, that the preaching that he was doing, that the gospel that he was preaching was validated by these Jewish uh, Jerusalem apostles because that would inevitably enable Paul then, to then go to Gal- the Galatians as he's doing right here in this letter and to say, hey, here's the thing. 
You know, I completely unpacked my gospel before these men and they accepted it 100%. And what that meant here is was that Paul's gospel was right and that these, uh, the gospel of these false teachers was totally corrupted and it was not to be listened to. This is critical. But there's a second result of this meeting here and not only the affirmation of Paul's gospel, but in verse 9 we read about the Jerusalem leaders giving the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and to Paul. The right hand of fellowship, it's a, a, gener- uh, it's a gesture. Um, it's uh, talking about a partnership where it's saying, listen guys, we're not together, but we're together. We are together in this. We can't reach Rome and the Roman world it, it just in our own way and the, the things that we're doing on our own. We need, a, we need cooperation. We need a corporate effort here. We need a collaboration to take place. And this is what I love so much about St. Paul's and the connection that we have to mission organizations and missionaries that are located all around the world. We have about 100 people meeting together here on Sunday mornings at St. Paul's and there are 8 billion people in the world. Now, I don't even know how to count 8 billion people, let alone know how to reach 8 billion people with the gospel from 94th and Winchester right here. Unless we cooperate with others in order to get the job done. And so we give the right hand of fellowship to others, of course, with the condition that there is unity around the gospel of Jesus Christ. Listen, we can't partner with people who don't have an agreement about the gospel with us. But where there is agreement about the gospel of God, where there is agreement about the gospel of Jesus Christ, we can partner together to to make a difference, to to, uh, impact the world with the gospel. And this is what Paul is confirming was the case by his trip to Jerusalem. Now, Paul understood that that they were called to two very different groups of people. Even as a Jewish man, Paul was called to take the gospel to the Roman world. And you can read all about that in the book of Acts and this amazing series of events that took place. God had called Paul to take the gospel to the Gentiles and the Jerusalem apostles, the Jerusalem church, the believers right there in the heart of Judea felt compelled to have a primary focus of their ministry being to the Jews. That didn't mean that the Jerusalem church never preached the gospel to Gentiles. They did, but their primary ministry in Judea was to the Jews. Paul's primary ministry was to the Gentiles. But, but, but did Paul ever preach the gospel to Jews? Well, certainly he did. In fact, every time he went into a new town, that the first place that he went was to the Jewish synagogue, the first place that he went. And so there was certainly overlap there, but the emphasis was a little different in terms of ministry, which is the case here as well. I feel compelled to preach the gospel to Illinoisans primarily, Because that's where God has placed me. Others preach the gospel in Colorado or Oregon or Massachusetts or wherever that God might lead them and take them. 
Others might go to places like Brazil or the Philippines or the Czech Republic, Zambia, Africa, countless other places with the message of Jesus Christ. Listen, God calls people to go to certain places and those people are to preach the gospel to anybody and to everybody, but they have a primary focus of taking the gospel to a particular group of people. And so we need to learn to value the gospel partnerships that we have wherever there is unity around the gospel of Jesus Christ, of course, because the world is too big and time is too short in order for us to do it all by ourselves. Friends, gospel partnership is critical if we are going to persist in the ministry. Because you cannot live on an island all by yourself as a minister of the gospel. We, we're reminded and we need to be reminded that it, we're not in this alone. Yes, we need the Lord and yes, we need the Spirit of God, but we need each other too. We are called to persist in the ministry, to never give up. But we need to realize that the gospel involves struggle, that the gospel requires acceptance of all kinds of people, and that the gospel encourages partnerships together in the gospel. For a long time, the philosophy of the world has been, you know what, if you don't like the way things are, just pack your bags, give up, and walk away. But God's word says, persist. God's word says, press on, fight the good fight of faith, never give up, do not yield, even for a moment. And with all of that in mind, the closing question this morning is this, how committed am I to the ministry of the gospel in my church, in my community, in my state, and in my world? This is the word of God, and all God's people said Amen and amen. Let's pray.